This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can compare the Chris Watts murder case to what we know about familicide. So really what I'm talking about here is how does the Chris Watts case fit into what we know and what type of familicide was Chris Watts involved in? Like where does it fit in terms of typology? So I think what happens a lot of times when this case is analyzed is that it's analyzed without context. We actually have a lot of information available in the literature about familicide. And yet you'll see kind of a narrowing in on this case without considering that larger context. So sometimes in research and just in trying to gain knowledge in general, we have to step back from something to get a clear view of it. So as with all my videos about real people, I'm not diagnosing anybody here. I'm just speculating based on the evidence that's available. So I'll quickly give a summary of the Chris Watts murder case. And then I'll go through familicide and what that is and what types of familicide there are, and then point out the correlates to the Chris Watts case. So we see here that this case occurred, the murders occurred, in August of 2018. And we see that it involves Chris Watts, who was 33, his wife, who was 34, and she was also pregnant, and his two daughters, ages three and four. And we see also there was an affair involved that was going on for about five weeks at the time of the murder. And there's different theories about psychopathy and narcissism in terms of the personality. And I've talked about these before in prior videos. So we know that Chris Watts did murder his wife and children and his unborn child. Right now, we don't believe there were any accomplices involved. There's not any clear evidence that there was any type of accomplice activity or conspiracy going on. There are different theories about premeditation. I'll talk about that in a little bit, too. And we also see that there were financial stressors in the family at the time of the murders. And this is important because it connects to familicide and what I'll be talking about here. So now moving on to the concept of familicide and what we know from the research literature. Now, I read a, a number of articles to help me put this video together. And I'll put the references to those articles in the description for this video. So let's look at the definition of familicide. So technically, familicide refers to the killing of multiple family members. And there's actually quite a few different conceptualizations available of this term. Most commonly, we use it to refer to a homicide of an intimate partner and at least one child. The prevalence of familicide is actually very low. It's exceedingly rare. We see that parasite or killing parents or when people kill siblings, this is actually less common than familicide, but still familicide does not happen very often. Now we see in most of the studies of familicide that the perpetrator who kills a spouse is often a male. And typically what we see is the perpetrator would be a white male in their 30s or 40s. And we know that males commit about 95% of the familicides. So in this video, I'll be using he to refer to the perpetrator and she to refer to the wife or the intimate partner simply because of the math behind this. Of course, it can be the other way around, 
But again, I'm just using this example because of the number of familicides committed by men. We also see that the typical familicide involves the use of a firearm. And we see that compared to people that commit a single intimate homicide, that an individual who commits a familicide is much less likely to have a criminal record and more likely to suffer from a personality disorder. And interestingly, specifically, a cluster B personality disorder. And this is the dramatic erratic cluster in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it contains four personality disorders, antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic personality disorders. We know that of these four, antisocial and narcissistic seem to be even more overrepresented in terms of familicides. So what we have so far here, connecting this back to the Chris Watts case, if we look at this, we see that, of course, Chris Watts was a white male. He was 33. He did not use a firearm, and he didn't have a criminal record that I know of. And in terms of the cluster B personality pathology, we really don't know. Of course, we can only speculate there. But as I pointed out in prior videos, there are some of the characteristics evident that connect with psychopathy and narcissism. That doesn't mean that he definitely has these disorders like antisocial personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder, but rather there may be some elements of psychopathy and elements of narcissism at work. Again, without assessing somebody, there's no way to really know, but this is just speculation based on the evidence that we have. So we see some connection here between what we understand about familicide so far and the Chris Watts case. So looking further at some of the other characteristics of familicide, we see that the perpetrator is likely to have dominated the relationship, the family relationship. They often feel a need to maintain control. The perpetrators often have a patriarchal perspective of the family unit, use drugs and alcohol, have a prior history of abandonment, rejection, abuse, and violence in their childhood, have poor coping skills, and often poor employment histories that involve short-term employment periods that result in termination. So looking at these aspects and looking at the parallel over to the Chris Watts case, I don't see a lot of connections here. It doesn't seem like Chris Watts was dominant. He didn't appear to be controlling. I don't know about the patriarchal perspective piece, but that doesn't seem to be at work. We don't have evidence that there were a lot of drugs and alcohol involved. I'm not aware of any involved. And in terms of childhood abandonment, rejection, abuse, and violence, we don't have a lot of information on this. Coping skills, again, it's really hard to determine that from what we have available. And in terms of employment history, that doesn't seem to be the same type of employment history talked about here in familicides. We don't see a short-term employment history with a lot of terminated employments. So what about the victim characteristics in familicides that we see in the research literature? Well, women who have been involved in a relationship where a familicide occurred are usually between the ages of 25 and 44, but this isn't really surprising because this is the age range where somebody would likely be if they had dependent children. We see that children between the ages of 3 and 5 are the most common victims, and the next most common age category would be 0 to 2 years old, and children who are over 17 years of age are almost never involved in a familicide in terms of being the victims. So if we look for parallels here in this information about victim characteristics, we see that the wife and the children fall within the age range that would be most common in a familicide. Now there's some other characteristics we see as well. 79% of women 
killed in a familicide had been abused by their killer, and 64% of those victims experienced an increase in the severity of abuse prior to the final attack, so the murderous attack. And often, the abuse involved would be sexual assaults, choking, and strangulation. So if we look here at the parallels, there's not a lot of evidence that Chris was abusive to his wife. And of course, we don't see any evidence that that escalated because we don't have evidence that that occurred in the first place. But the method of murder evidently was strangulation. So that's interesting because that does seem to connect over to what we see from the research literature. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So now moving on to the motives of familicide, we could also consider this like the types of familicide, because usually in terms of typology, familicides are divided up by motive. So I'll connect this back to the extent possible to the Chris Watts case after I've described all four types here. So usually we are talking about four types. So the first type of familicide in terms of motive is called immortality. And usually this involves a financial or lifestyle stressor related to finance. The perpetrator often suffers from mental illness in these instances, especially depression that's overrepresented. And the idea here is that the perpetrator believes that he fails to provide for the family. So he may kill the family in an attempt to immortalize the family, to keep everybody together as they are in that moment. So in the mind of the perpetrator, he's actually protecting the family in kind of a strange way, believing that death is better than poverty and all the consequences of poverty. So that's the immortality motive of familicide. The next motive is the need for control. And this one we would more commonly see in a family where there was a threat of separation, like if a wife was threatening to leave a husband. The perpetrator commits the final act of control by killing the entire family. So the quote oftentimes used here is, if I can't have them, no one can. That's the mentality behind the need for control motive. So we see what happens here is the perpetrator has a fear of abandonment, and he fails to differentiate himself and the members of the family. So he's unable to separate the children from the partner, for instance. And he rationalizes that if the partner is attempting to end the relationship, the children must be attempting to do so as well. So that's how the perpetrator in a need for control familicide kind of 
justifies and rationalizes the murders. The next motive or type of familicide is called suicide. It's the suicide motive. The perpetrator kills the spouse and the children because he believes that they are unable to go on without the head of the household, without him. So the perpetrator here is also driven by a desire to protect the family, again, kind of a strange way. But here he's trying to protect them from the shame of having a parent who committed suicide. The last motive for familicide, in terms of how we divide up the categories for familicide, is revenge. And this is often connected to sexual jealousy. The perpetrator believes that the spouse or ex-spouse has been involved in infidelity. And in these cases, the children are being viewed by the perpetrator as somehow equally responsible for that betrayal. So sometimes the perpetrator kills the children and then commits suicide, but does not kill the wife. So again, we can see here that the motive is vengeance. The perpetrator wants the wife to believe that she caused the horrific murders by her act of betrayal, that all the murders are her fault. So that's the revenge motive. So we also see here with these types that premeditation is particularly common in familicide. So now to connect these points over to Chris Watts. So this is pretty interesting, and I'll talk about these four types in Chris Watts as well as the premeditation component. Chris Watts doesn't appear to fit into any of these motive categories. We can look at each one, right? Immortality. Again, there's a financial lifestyle component here. Well, there were some financial stressors, but the idea that Chris Watts was protecting his family because he believed that death was better than poverty, that doesn't seem to be at work here. In terms of the need for control motive, there was no threat of separation here. So this one doesn't really make sense. We didn't really see that mentality at work. In terms of the suicide motive, well, obviously Chris Watts didn't commit suicide, so that one doesn't seem to fit. And in terms of the revenge motive, he was the one cheating. It wasn't about him worrying that his wife would leave. He was the one who was having the affair. So the Chris Watts case is very unusual in this way because it doesn't fit with any of the common motives we see with milicide. Now, what if there were no affair in this case? What if we had all the evidence about the Chris Watts case except for the information about the affair? Would that change how people would picture this case? Would it then fit into one or more of the types? Well, just really guessing here, because we do have that information, it's hard to really think about what the view would be without that information. But if I were to guess, I would say immortality or revenge would seem to be the types at work if there were no affair. But because we know about the affair, my theory of the crime is really more about that affair. I think that affair was a major driver, including the selfishness component of infidelity. But of course, it's likely that we'll never know what the true motive was. So again, this case is a bit unusual in terms of typology and familicide. Now how about the idea of premeditation? We see that premeditation is very common with all four types of familicide. Well, Chris Watts denies that the murder of his wife and unborn child was premeditated. Obviously, the murder of his daughters was premeditated because he says they occurred 45 minutes later. I really wish there was more evidence in this case. There's all kinds of theories around in terms of what happened, but there's no way to really know. At this point, I'm more inclined to believe that all of these murders were premeditated, but again, I'm working with a very limited amount of evidence, as is everybody in this situation. 
Chris Watts has been known to lie, so we have to be careful about his statements. So that just leaves us really in an uncomfortable place of not knowing. So in considering familicide and specifically the Chris Watts case, how can we relate this over to counseling? Well, what we see in familicide is that the survivors of familicide and the extended family members of both the victim and the perpetrator are left with many unanswered questions. And of course, we see that specifically in the Chris Watts case as well. And one of the questions we see often is, why were children involved? Why did somebody murder children? All familicide is senseless, but when you look at the murder of children, there's not even a part of it that's really understandable. And again, this leaves the survivors and the extended family members in a really tough spot. There's little support for the pain, loss, and grief that they experience, especially to the family members of the perpetrator, in terms of, again, talking about support, how much support is available to them. Survivors and family members often spend years trying to search for meaning behind the murders. So by studying familicide in general and the Chris Watts case specifically, what we hope is that through the knowledge we gain from the research here is that survivors may gain some insights in terms of how familicide functions, what happens. They can try to make sense of some of it. Of course, the devastation of familicide is so pronounced that even all these efforts would probably not bring a lot of relief. But again, if there's a small part, if there's a small degree of insight that research can bring to this and that's helpful, then that can be a positive thing for the survivors and extended family members, even if it's only positive in a very small way. So another reason we study familicide, and specifically the Chris Watts case, is we hope that the knowledge we gain from this can be used to help intervene with at-risk families, and we can work to prevent senseless deaths. So we see the different characteristics of familicide, and if we see this at work in the community, we hope that mental health professionals and other professionals can get into that situation, intervene, and prevent. So all this research and all these different analyses of cases like this are important. There's a point to this, and it's prevention. Ultimately, that's what we hope to achieve through all these different endeavors. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.